Buenas. Welcome back to Film Posers for Boricuas, ranting, raving, and reviewing cinema. Today, we are going to be bringing back our film craft series, and this time, we are going to be sharing tips on how to write a rom-com. So, before we get into the whole shenanigans of actually how to write the rom-com, let's try to describe a rom-com. Um, a romantic comedy or a rom-com sets out to prove one or more of these following statements. True love does exist. There's someone out there just for us, and if we could only find them, we could experience true love. And romance can overcome all obstacles. Before we get into like the history of the rom-coms and what exactly it stands for, posers. What are rom-coms to you? Like when was like what is your earliest memory of a rom-com? Um, maybe what's your favorite rom-com? But what's like your ultimate favorite rom-com? And just like, yeah, what is your earliest memory most importantly? Hmm. To me, I tend to associate rom-coms with joy most of the time because some of them make me cry, but then again, I am a crier, so but I really don't know what was my first rom-com. It's just something that I stumbled upon one day. I think one of the earliest ones that I remember watching is The Holiday. I think that's one uh, one of the first one I, first ones I watched and uh, oh, Father of the Bride. Father of the Bride was a staple one in my ho- in my house, so that one. And you know, I always te- associate them with movies where like nothing tends to go wrong you know they tend to be happy mm-hmm. they have their emotional moments but you know they tend to be happy and obviously like the romance and all of that yeah because usually there are mishaps but they're they tend to be light-hearted nothing's too mm-hmm. like serious or traumatic like father of the bride like the whole wedding you know it's stressful it's stressful but it's funny to watch you know like him being stressed out about the wedding and you know the hot dog scene that scene I always found it so funny yeah so I think those are because I tend to watch like a lot of sad and dramatic and (laughs) well the posers know this that I tend to watch very sad stuff so rom-coms are a break of of the tragedy that I tend to watch. You watching stuff that makes you cry? Never would have guessed. <laughs> um, so my earliest rom-com. Wow. Um, I think it have to be some of like, like some of the films we mentioned on our teenage episode, like the John Tucker must die. Just my luck. She's the man like early 2000s. But I also think the holiday I feel like the holiday was my first, but my first conscious viewing of knowing what what was going on at like nine, eight, or nine years old. I, I forgot my age, but it's fine. And would have to be like John Tucker Must Die or Just My Luck, like one of those two. It's probably the one where I knew what was going on. I usually associate a rom com with. I look to laugh. I look to have a ending. I hope that the couple at the end makes it. Rewatchable. I always take rewatchability factor into consideration when picking like a favorite. Like if I can watch like four to five times minimum, I know I love it. For favorites for me, I'm between The Proposal and Crazy Rich Asians. Those are the first two that come to my head. Because The Proposal is iconic with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds, but Crazy Rich Asians has that wedding scene, which kills me. 
the rewatchability factor that Juan mentioned that is also very important in rom coms because I don't I don't watch rom coms to only watch them one time and never watch them again unless they're bad. Like if I watch a rom com, I need to know if this is going to be a comfort movie. Yeah, that's definitely it. It definitely also has to be a comfort movie because you look to those to be like I'm feeling kind of sad. I need to be lifted up for my mood, and they usually work for like some serotonin, and it's yeah. great. So as for me, um not the biggest fan of rom-coms if i do prefer like romantic and like more drama based more serious tone but sometimes you just want to be like chill and watch a romantic comedy and just like laugh but i don't remember like my earliest rom-com like movie that i watched but i know that gabriela <laughs> Over the years, I've recommended me a lot of rom-coms, and I have watched a lot of rom-coms with her. So, thank you, Gabriela. <laughs> More like forced her. But, you know, she has found some that she has liked and some that she has hated. I'm sorry. You're forgiven. <laughs> and the one that I'm going to, like, discuss, like, más adelante, <laughs> Gabriela actually was the one that, like, forced me to watch it but I liked it a lot (laughs) you're welcome thank you so for me I think it's the same thing I I don't know what my earliest film like romantic comedy that I watched but I will say that one of the earliest films that I can remember is uh 13 going on 30 oh that one too yes like that is a really good one to go back to and of course like um princess diaries which plays into the whole like something we're gonna get into soon which is like rom-coms versus chick flicks and I was I would say that one of my fondest memories of like actually getting into rom-coms was one night when a friend of mine stayed over at my house and she brought a huge stack of dvds (laughs) and that's when I was introduced to so many films like my um my uh big fat greek wedding um leap year um the wedding date wedding planner all the wedding <laughs> movies <Yes. laughs> like all, all the wedding the, all the good things yeah like especially bridget jones she made me watch both of them because the third one hadn't come out at that point and came out years later and yeah, yeah we we just watched all the classic ones that you, that you honestly look, watch them and you say yes these are the classics <laughs> All the wedding rom-coms slap. They Well, there's one that comes to mind that's bad, but most of the ones that have to do with, with weddings are good, so. that The one that really sticks out to me is The Wedding Singer. Oh, yeah. It has a classic. It drew very well a classic. We, we love, love her in this house. <laughs> that After reminds- the wedding. Yeah. I was gonna say after the wedding singer, the other one that reminded me of I saw it for the first time this year, which was the wedding planner with J Lo. You've yeah. never seen that movie? Not until 2020. No. <gasps> A classic. I have seen that movie like 47 times. I'm the brown MMs. Exactly. I, I still think about the brown MMs thing. There's one thing I didn't like about that movie though. You're like the biggest J-Lo fan and you've never seen The Wedding Planner. I have my flaws, Gabriela. You know who's like my queen of rom-coms? Like she can do no wrong. Diane Keaton. I mean, Diane Keaton I is a rom-com icon. 
She yeah. is a rom com queen. I love her. But you were so gonna- is Anne Hathaway. <laughs> you were gonna say about uh, the wedding planner. Oh yeah. So my thing is, her character really tried to fall for a man willing to lie to his fiance and possibly sacrifice her career for him. I literally saw that and said, JLo is really an actress because I don't even think she would do that. <laughs> How can we forget about the other classic JLo rom-com, Monster-in-Law? <gasps> I love that one. That's really good. When yes. she shoves James Fonda's cake into the fa- into face of the cake, I'm like, secretly, I know she was pissed at someone that day and she was just taking it out on poor Jane Fonda. Poor Jane Fonda. She tried to murder her with her peanut allergy. That was so funny, though. <laughs> we almost witnessed like, murder. Her fiance was a doctor. She was going to be fine. <laughs> also, it's ironic that certain films we love a lot, romantic comedies, always get really bashed by critics. Like, Because I Said So has like less than 10% on Rotten Tomatoes, First Daughter, same thing. And it's like, because those are some of has no favorites. Taste. Oh, I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> I just see that and I go, do the people know more than the critics? We've been confirmed that we do. Like, I, First Daughter, it was one of those movies that I was personally victimized by. I'm just saying. So you telling me that First Daughter is bad, it's very insulting to me. Keep in mind, I never said this, but critics did. They personally attacked Gabriela. Perfect segue for our next short section, which is the whole rom-coms versus chick flicks um debacle because it just leads again to the fact that these films often sometimes they do have good financial success and sometimes they do have good ratings when it comes to like Rotten Tomatoes for example but they're often cast aside by these critics or general moviegoers at times because they're either too girly or they're looked at through a kind of they're kind of looked at through an outdated lens because I think there's more to them than just being like quote-unquote chick flicks which some people do like the term because they know exactly what they're gonna get and what they're going for which I get it in terms of comfort but there's also that other side where people think it just leads to that old misogyny that went into these films that primarily are consumed by women because they're just really nice and fluffy and sometimes that's all you want and that's all you need at the time you don't need something like you don't need more than that and also another thing is that when it comes to those films again you just want comfort exactly like I feel that calling them chick flicks it's just like a way of saying oh those films aren't good enough or they aren't worthy of, you know, receiving good reviews or financial success because, you know, they're just like subpar movies made exclusively for women. And that's why they're called chick flicks. It's kind of like a denigrated, like denigrated term in a way. Because, you know, it's like the genre is romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Chick flicks, it's not the genre. Like yeah, that so- is just something that people made up to make them seem as if they're not movies worth worth your time and, and yeah speaking of what Josie said about the outdated lens what I find interesting is that critics say oh only women will pay to see these romantic comedies or quote-unquote chick flicks but that's not true if a guy is taking their significant other their partner out on a date and they want to see this kind of romantic comedy technically the one who's paying for the movie and paying to support it 
comes from the guy's pocket if they are treating the partner to the date. So by default, that already proves that men do pay to see rom-coms. So that's already a flaw in their criticism. That yes, maybe women enjoy it more than certain men, some films, sure. But their date, their already criticism is already a little bit flawed. Yeah, and also just a quick thing is that we don't mean to be so heteronormative. <laughs> it's that usually exactly. the people that often, like historically speaking, when we see the criticism against these types of films, it's usually men sitting behind their computers <laughs> trying to criticize a film that maybe just wasn't for them. Exactly. I also feel that some critics, just because they don't like rom-coms, they already have the preconceived notion that they're not going to like it, so that's why they just bash it in their reviews. Yeah, they go into it with a negative. If you don't like the genre, why will you review it if you don't like it? Exactly. Yeah, which has happened before with like horror films. Uh, That one time that um, a critic did not like a horror film and they criticized it as such and then it was revealed that the person just doesn't like horror (laughs) and it's like then why are it automatically by default your critique does not count because you're already approaching it with a bias critics who discard a rom-com just because of their label it's 2021 you have to evolve by now anyone of any gender sexuality whatever can like a rom-com and identify with it if they really love the message they're spreading. Like, come on now. It, it's been years now. Exactly. And also, don't you just want to watch a movie for fun? Right? Like, don't you want to watch a feminist masterpiece like John Tucker Must Die, who literally all get together to take down a womanizer? Like, that's fun. Like, I remember when Last Christmas came out and people were bashing it. They're like, oh my God, this is so cliche. It's so bad. And it's like, what were you expecting? First of all, that movie slaps. That movie slaps, first of all. It's that a Christmas is a beautiful movie. movie. I went in for a good time for a good Christmas movie, and I got a good Christmas movie. What else was I expecting? Like, that's it. Like, like I feel like all sometimes critics are just like, everything needs to me to be like the next cinema cinematographic masterpiece that needs to go down in the history books hey come on why don't you just watch a movie just to enjoy it and not like criticize it to be yeah once some films just need to serve a purpose of entertainment for like 90 minutes or 100 minutes get the audience you know to hear the story get them to connect with it and at the end of the day be like that was such a good time i have serotonin i feel good it's hot and they just look for it to end positively unless it ends depressingly then they're just in la mala hours and you know shit happens well you want to watch a rock you just want to be in la buena hours honestly yes absolutely it depends on the (laughs) rom-com that you choose true but also Also, there's a mm -hmm. rom-com i was gonna say real quick there's a rom-com i'm surprised gabriela hasn't mentioned as one of her earliest which is the prince and me Oh my god, that is gold. Yes. God, the earliest tier. The prince and me. We don't talk about this. Yes, that's one of my earliest movies. What are you talking about? There's only one film. Yes, there's only one (laughs) film. There's one film. (laughs) So going back to that, just to close off the section, 
it just another thing that irks me is that immediately when it comes to like naming them chick flicks then people start calling these films guilty pleasures and it's like you don't have to be feel you shouldn't feel guilty about enjoying these films so we hope that going into this episode you'll realize that it's okay to like rom-coms i do have a point to add to that i feel like growing up i for example i like don't talk about diet i like the one i saw it but when sometimes you get bullied into the example in my case female perspective of you know oh that's for women you know like if you identify that if you like that you identify some sort of way and they just push that perspective on you and they kind of just like force it upon you kind of like hide it away and it's like no like obviously you grow up and you realize that you know they're not going to amount to anything and they're going to peak in high school like obviously that's the point but you know it's a matter people say it's like guilty pleasures some of some for some people they're like they had to like get into a shell because of views that were forced onto them because at the time that's what was in that's what people were had to be to fit in so they try to get out of that shell but it's never easy because they're already so accustomed to that way of life for example it takes years to get out of that for some people exhibit a So now that we've discussed the romantic comedy and our personal experiences and relationship with rom-coms, let's get into what everyone's here for. And it's how do you write the rom-com? So it has to be what? Romantic. (laughs) It has a slice of life feel and it has to be funny, though the genre has evolved beyond screwball comedies. Pretty simple. But it also has to have structure, not just your regular hero's journey or your Snyder beat sheet. Like other than Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, there are more ways of being able to tell when you're watching a romantic comedy. And we're going to take you through them. So the first part that we have is your protagonist has to be likable. It is difficult to sell a rom-com if your protagonist isn't likable. You want to root for this person. You want them to find true love, which means you will not cheer for someone that's a jerk or simply a toxic person. This goes for the love interest as well. We want to believe that they'll live happily ever after together. And we can't do that if we don't like either of the two people. And that doesn't mean that they have to be perfect because nobody's perfect. But we need to believe that these people are destined to be together. Like a good example would be, which is the example I'm bringing in, um... Lara Jean and Peter Kavinsky in the first To All the Boys I've Loved Before movie. Let's not talk about the other ones. Let's just talk about the first one because, I mean, from the beginning, you can tell that they had their little moment when they were young and then they had that other moment with the letters and everything and then it just evolves naturally. And um, they do have some issues which we will get into later. But from the beginning, like, you already know that you're rooting for them. It's just a matter of how they're going to end up together. I'm not surprised that you brought up to all the boys I've loved before. And um, the movie the movie actually comes out February 12th. So um, the third and final installment of the, um, the franchise is on Netflix. So yes. <laughs> Netflix, I'm doing promo for you. <laughs> oh. God. Yeah, but I gotta say, like, to all the boys, like, the first one is one of the few rom-coms that I actually liked, and yes. I thought they were cute together, and I liked 
the chemistry between them and the drama and I was like oh my god they're gonna be together or what that was like yes. one of the few movies that made me feel that way yes it's cute and it evolves naturally also has one of the top tier tropes which is fake dating <laughs> So to me, one that comes to mind is The Prince and Me. Like Juan mentioned it previously and it just, I remembered that movie so well because it is one of my favorite rom-coms. So, you know, obviously we see that, you know, he goes to the university and that they meet and you immediately know they're going to end up together because they hate each other at first, which that's just like the recipe for love. You know, they start hating each other. And of course, they're going to end up together. So you're always like, how are they going to switch, you know, from hating each other to liking each other? Like, what's going to happen to get them to that level? And also that happens in another one of my favorites, 10 Things I Hate About You. Amen. Cinema. That movie got tier, a classic. It's the same thing. Because it's also, it kind of also has like the fake dating thing because he, like Patrick Patrick Verona, the best of the boyfriends, honestly. (laughs) That, you know, it's kind of like he is paid to seduce and date Kat. So it's kind of like, okay, they're obviously going to fall in love for real. So how is this going to work out? So those two are the ones that come to mind in terms of that you know they're you're they're going to end up together based on the circumstances and how are they going to change to turn that around and you know be in a relationship. I mean, it's not enemies to lover, but mostly like they both are dating other people mm-hmm. and they just like in the circumstances that they come together and they suddenly try like fell in love, which Again, it's the wedding singer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I needed to talk about the Sandman universe in the wrong com- <laughs> division. Of course you are. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're surprised that Anna brought the Sandman. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're surprised Anna has not seen the pivotal movie in the, An- the Sandman romantic comedy universe, 51st Dates. 51st Dates is the most watch, Anna. Jesus. How have you not seen Fifty First Dates? I know. I haven't seen it. Okay. And everybody loves that movie. There's one final movie that has enemies to lovers. And it was mentioned. Princess Diaries 2. Listen. Listen. Yes. Listen. I too. I too will leave my fiance for Chris Pine. <laughs> It's also very important to note that when we say enemies to lovers, it has to be like casual enemies. Like, for example, Princess Diaries 2 is a perfect one. Like, they can't they can't be toxic. <laughs> no, it's just him that's trying whole, to steal the throne of Genovia. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> and that actually leads us to our next point, which is you have to introduce the love interest early because that's how the audience will know that they are in fact the love interest but something has to be wrong because they can't get together just yet we need to see their lives apart from each other get to know these characters because we need to feel like they're people that we hang out on a daily basis we need to really connect with these people because essentially you're seeing yourself 
in either the love interest or the protagonist. Because again, these movies are meant to make us at least believe a little bit in the magic when it comes to love. So something usually keeps them apart, an <laughs> obstacle, a circumstance. Um, for example, as you were mentioning with um, Princess Diaries 2, um, one of them want and like she's trying to defend the throne, and then Chris Pratt's character wants the throne. So like not Chris Pratt. Chris Pine. <laughs> Chris Pine. <laughs> Chris Pine. Um, it's, it's the P. It's the P. I'm no! sorry. No. How dare you? Um, Princess Mia is trying to protect her title and her right to be the queen of Genovia and then you have Chris Pine's character who's trying to take that away from her so there has to be an obstacle as to why these people can't be together and when Harry met Sally they're dating other people the same as in the wedding singer so also they um and when Harry met Sally they don't get along at the beginning because well it just doesn't work out and sometimes things don't work out in the beginning but like we have to see them together in the end so the entire point of the film is here are these two people and they should be together. Let's see how that happens. So one of my examples for that um, is from my man crush Ryan Reynolds in The Proposal, where Sandra Bullock is in danger of losing her visa status and being deported. And she pretends to be with Andrew Paxton and says they're going to get married so that she can stay working. And they go on this journey back to his hometown and if you've seen the proposal, you know what happens. It's a great movie, but I feel that fits so well because the only thing they really don't like each other at first, like you said, and then once the walls come down and they start to get to know each other better, they're kind of like, "Oh, you're definitely not the person I thought you were at the beginning of the movie," and it works. Yes, because we need to we need to see these people get to know each other, or else it doesn't work out. Also, Sandra Bullock had to do chants with Betty White. Like, of course, that's going to lower down her barriers. The one that comes to mind for me is The Wedding Date, which is one of my favorite ones. I love The Wedding Date. So we meet, you know, the plot of the film is that she hires like a, ma- a male escort to be her date to her sister's wedding because the best man is her ex. So she wants to make him jealous. So, you know, we know that he's coming. The the Her date, her wedding date. Ha, ha. <laughs> um, so, you know, and he when he appears, you immediately know, oh, like, this is not going to be like a business transaction. This is going to end up in a full-blown romance. Because, you know, it's it's going to happen. And we meet him like 15 minutes into the movie at most, maybe less. So that's the one that comes to mind. Cause, and obviously, like he appears and he's very charming because, of course, he is. He's basically like the, the, the best human specimen to have ever walked the earth. Because, of course, he is. And no one complains about it because, yeah, he's good looking. So... Let's let's go. Let's go to the wedding and let's have you fall in love. So for me, when I think about the trope about enemies to lovers is Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Like it's not a rom-com specifically, but it does have the rom-com tropes. And 
it's fun i love it it's like one of those movies that you can just like it's rewatchable again i don't watch a lot of rom-coms but i feel that this one hits the spot for me in a certain way i don't know about you guys yeah it also works when if you're using um this episode to write your own rom-com when it comes to mr and mrs smith they are married but that happens so quickly into the film that you know that something is going to tear them apart. But they are meant to be together in the end. So we have to see, again, that journey as to how they end up together. Mm-hmm. So I would say that if you're going to write your own rom-com, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is, in fact, a good one to look at, for examples, when it comes to um, building your characters and, like, your protagonist and your love interest. I actually had a question for Josie about a trope in particular. Uh, now, we mentioned... Like, they need something of someone else. But in Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, I remember that it started with one of them, with Nora telling Nick, like, hey, could you be my boyfriend for, like, five minutes? And then they go on this journey together. And it's a casual way of starting, of how they end up being together. Because you wouldn't expect for her to just be like, let me just pick some random guy that I heard at the heard his band sing once because my ex is in the same room as I am. And so, and realize, yeah, so is his. Is that really a trope or is that just convenience? That, I would say it's more convenience, but it plays into the trope because um, I have not seen that movie. So I'm going to use The Prince and Me again as an example. In The Prince and Me, um, the prince needs to learn stability. And our protagonist needs to learn how to have fun, that life isn't all about work. And once you put these two people together and they finally manage to mend each other and like mend together and find stability within their relationship, you learn that they balance each other out and they give each other what they need. So essentially think of it as a puzzle piece, not that one person completes another, because of course, if we're going to get into that whole debacle, we are whole people. We don't need someone else to complete us. <laughs> but when it comes to romantic comedies in itself, it's very important that your character is searching for something that the other person can provide for them. Be it not like anything physical, like in a monetary sense or anything like that, even though that sometimes plays again into circumstance. It has to do a lot with like um, emotional, spiritual, and in a mental sense. And in the case of Fifty Shades of Grey, economic stability. That's the the main factor that would draw me to Christian Grey financial Honestly, stability. I, I will say that forever. I've tweeted it before. Yes. I find the I can see the appeal, and it's financial stability. <laughs> That's it. Like she had an English degree. I had an English degree. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> financial stability is very appealing yes <laughs> moving on to the next part which is the most important when writing your rom-com and it's the meet cute they have to meet and it has to be cute it's pretty self-explanatory <laughs> this, yes this moment is also used to prove how right they are for each other which serves as dramatic irony because we know it but they know it but they don't know it sorry and like even though it proves how right they are for each other that doesn't mean that it has to go well it can go super wrong it can be a disaster 
like in the Prince of Me, you can spill beer on someone else and like, yes, it'll be okay. It's still, it's still going to be a meet cute because we know that, oh, okay, these two people have to end up together. <laughs> They're going to end up together. So that is the, the point of the Miku. Again, in summary, it doesn't have to be well. Like, it doesn't have to be a good moment. It can be the most awkward moment ever. But that's how you know. That is how you know that these two, yes, they're going to live happily ever after. I have one. Yes. Leap year. She just showed up. It was raining. She goes to the bar. And who is there? Matthew Good, the asshole. He hates life. He hates everything. And then comes Amy Adams. And she's like, um, I need help. And he's like, ugh, fine. <laughs> now that. Which that is another great trope. The person that hates life. And then suddenly it's like, I hate everything except for you. So hey, I'm writing. Just trying- yeah. I was going to say, hey, she's just trying to get that good life, you know? <laughs> Stop it. That's my joke. <laughs> then why didn't you say it? I guess it just wasn't a good enough time for oh it. Oh, my God. So when writing a rom-com, I will suggest that that is a good relationship trope to go for. The person that hates life. And then you have this shiny, like the sunshine spot human being that, yes, this is the only thing that they're going to care about from now on. Yes. So I'm going to bring it back to to all the boys I've loved before. (laughs) So um, I have a hard time placing the meet cute for this one because they do have history and they met that time when they spun the bottle. But I will say that I'm going to attribute it to the moment where she almost hits him with her car because that's the first time we see them interacting solely just the two of them without anyone else interfering and it's at that moment that you're like oh these two are gonna end up together i have one that i'm that it's not exactly a Mm rom-com but that element is there that i think gabriela loves and she's gonna she's gonna want to talk about it the half of it yes there's also bringing it back to Gabriela's favorites, <laughs> Princess Diaries too. When she steps on his foot while they're dancing because she gets annoyed with him, that's a meet cute. Like again, yeah, it proves that's... the point that it doesn't have to be perfect. It can go super wrong, yeah. but again, that's how you know that these are the two people we have to look out for. What what other meet cute do I stand? Uh-huh. I am I'm completely blanking right now. I'm blanking. <laughs> Okay, this is not a romantic comedy. This is just me bringing back the Sandman. <laughs> of course you are. But in Punch-Rug Love, she purposely, <laughs> she purposely leaves her car in his workspace so he can, like, meet, her, meet him. So I was like, I thought that was pretty cute. He, like, she really wanted to meet the guy. So she was like, you know what? I'm going to leave my car here. Okay, to support Anna's love for the Sandman, I'm going to mention 51st Dates when they meet at the diner and she's making the waffle house and he puts the toothpick so he makes a little waffle door for her and that is, like, cute. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember one. Is this movie called Chasing Liberty? It's basically the same plot as First Daughter, if you haven't seen it. No, so... Man. It stars Mandy Moore and Matthew Good. I guess we're on a Matthew Good role today. 
He's on that anyway, good roll today. Yes, I am on the good roll today. <laughs> Anyways, the the meet cute there is one I I to relate to that one because basically she decides that she doesn't want to do anything with diplomacy in Prague. She just wants to enjoy Prague. So she runs away from the event, finds, sees Matthew Good on his bike, on his, on his motorcycle, and, sh- and just climbs on it and tells him to go. And I'm like, same. Anna, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned a meet cute yet that you're a big fan of. It just doesn't go into the wrong convoy, but if you say so. Okay, so. <laughs> so the before trilogy. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, okay, it's not a rom-com, but it has a meet-cute. Exactly. It does, because, like, meeting in, um, in the train on your way to Vienna, I was like, if that's not cute. <laughs> exactly. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and afterwards, they have a whole life together. Allegedly. <laughs> All I know is that I watched the entire trilogy with Anna in one day and I went through it. <laughs> there were some good and bad moments and we went in love a lot, but at the same time we were like, oh, this is kind of... Yeah. Anna, Anna really enjoyed my reaction to it. <laughs> so the next part when you're writing a romantic comedy to keep in mind is that you need the quirky best friends. So your protagonist let's face it, probably won't get far on their own. They need help. A good example is probably Bridget Jones, and she'd probably admit to it herself. But the friends have to be fun. They have to be nice. And once again, they have to be likable. It's all about being charming and endearing, basically. Great examples are she's the man. I mean, her friends help her. (laughs) Like, get the wig, get the fake um, sideburns. Like pretend to be her brother just so she can play soccer at this at this new school. And then like also legally blonde. Um, hello, bend and snap, iconic. Yes, to legally blonde. Yes. Also, Miss Congeniality. Miss Congeniality. Thank you. <laughs> the friends. We need the people there. I mean, um, they contribute a lot also to the comedy of the romantic comedy so you really need them to be funny characters and they don't have to be like purposefully funny it can also be just circumstantial or just things that happen but a good example would be Miss Congeniality when they go out for to like the paint party and they have pizza and beer also we get to learn about the care like your protagonist through these secondary characters but we also get to give more life to the secondary characters so they're not just there to help your protagonist reach their goal. I have two quick examples of the quirky best friend. The first one is Miss Lily Moskowitz from Princess Diaries 2. She literally helped her try to get the crown in 30 days and we loved that for her. And the other one is Just My Luck, the two friends from Just My Luck because they both help Lindsay Lohan's character try to find out who stole her luck inevitably to find out it was Chris Pine and they literally help her go throughout New York City kissing random strangers that were at the party and they find out we're dancers after they look up the lineup of who it was supposed to be and she starts trying to see because they changed the luck by with a kiss so she just starts going around trying to see which hot man stole her luck 
and they keep like going through the one of them held like the the headshots and the resumes and they started going like is it him here's a lucky scratch off number try to see if it works with your luck didn't work not him like those are friends that literally went around new york city trying to help her out yes and to give some modern examples to show how the romantic comedy has been changing and how sometimes it has been holding on to the past would be like the two examples are love simon and to all the boys i've loved before again sorry for bringing it up again (laughs) It's the one I've watched the most recently. (laughs) So with Love, Simon, you have the group of friends and they're not, I I wouldn't say they're uh, exactly quirky, but they do help Simon along the way, even though I do have my beef with his friends (laughs) towards the end. um, Throughout the film, they do serve to help him throughout his journey. And then what to all the boys... I've looked before it does is that it sticks to certain tropes, which is of course um, the cut Genevieve's cousin, um, who is again quirky best friend. She's unusual. She likes to eat subway sandwiches under the bleachers. But you also have Lucas James, which is a gay character, which is often a trope that has been found within the rom com. Like example, also with uh, she's the man, and it's a specific character that's often shown within romantic comedies to fit that quirky best friend trope. And then there's a recent film that was isn't romantic with Rebel Wilson that tried to turn that on its head, where her neighbor, who is already gay, was turned into a, a stereotypical form of like a, a character of himself. And it was criticizing yeah. how how that is often done just to add comedic effect. I I uh, I agree with what you're saying, but like I still kind of like that film at the end. Yeah, no, that film is really good because it, it is criticizing exactly that. I really yeah. I, I do like that film because I mean it uses story structure really well, and it knows it's rom coms and it's telling you like if you want to learn how to write a rom com, also check out Isn't It Romantic because it is gonna tell you like what exactly should go into a rom-com because it's criticizing how a rom-com is and real final one with the friends um there's one example i'm surprised gabriela never mentioned even though it's more of a musical than a romantic comedy and even though it has the tropes is mama mia oh yeah yes. like you have yes. christine Berinsky and you have julie walters helping out Meryl Streep, trying to figure out which one's Sophie's dad. And they're all in the chaos, trying to help her out, set up for the wedding. They're like, the de- I feel like they're the definition of quirky, helping Meryl Streep out, but also, you know, helping themselves out as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there you have two storylines happening at the same time. Because Meryl Streep's character has her own quirky best friends, while Sophie has her um, own quirky best friends. So you're seeing two storylines play out simultaneously. Exactly. Which is something you can definitely do. It is a bit harder because, of course, then you have to focus on two stories and make sure that you hit the nail on the head for both stories. But still, of course, it can be done. One film that I think lacks in the sense is Desperados from Netflix. 
Because you do have the quirky best friends that do help the character, but then it goes back to the whole sense of that your protagonist needs to be likable. And at times it was for me, at least for me, I could not believe that these friends were going all out for this, for her when she wasn't, she just didn't deserve it. So make sure that your protagonist deserves the help that they're getting. The next part when you're writing a romantic comedy is the enemy. Someone will want to see your protagonist fail. Oftentimes, it's someone jealous of the protagonist, which usually elevates how wonderful your protagonist is, even if they themselves can't see it. Internal misogyny has caused this trope within the rom-com to usually be a woman who wants to see another woman fail. A great example is 13 going on 30. It goes from when they were in um, middle school up until when they're older, and then she slowly starts to realize that this person wasn't her friend at all because essentially she wanted her approval and then it, it, it she needed to go through that entire journey to realize that the only approval that she needed was her own. So that also plays into what does your character need to learn and your enemy will probably help that character learn it. And going back to an example you said of isn't it romantic, they criticized that so well with the fantasy aspect of her friend basically being from the one that gushes about romantic comedies all the time to the enemy because she's supposed to have an enemy that is out to basically be better than her by destroying her yeah i liked how they criticized it and it's why i included it when these films were starting out like in the 90s early 2000s a lot of us were made to believe that women were our competition and we weren't supposed to like each other and we were supposed to be jealous of each other. And that has changed a lot recently, especially, again, <laughs> to all the ways I've loved before. They tried to fix that in the second film, even though I'm not a big fan of the second film. I do like that one moment where Lara Jean and Genevieve sit down and they discuss their differences because essentially it humanized them in a sense. And it was the first time that I saw Genevieve not as a stereotypical character that we saw her in the first film. She was actually a person that was hurting and just lashed out in the worst way possible because they were going through some personal stuff. And to add another quick example, um, John Tucker must die. At first, they tried to pit all four of them together because they were in different high school cliques. And then when they all realized they had one common enemy that they could all band together and take him down, and they realized they had more in common than they thought. I like that they fixed that trope of instead of hating each other, let's take out the one who is trying to humiliate all of us. Yeah. And another one that comes to mind for me is my best friend's wedding. Because we have Julia Roberts is an, and Delmont Marvuni had made a pact that if they were still single by 30, I think it was, they were going to get married. And she has been in love with him her entire life and then the year that you know they're supposed to make that to make that happen he is engaged to be married to someone else but I like how the movie ends up handling that so it's not like at the end they don't you know it's not this that you know two women are fighting over a man at the end of the movie it doesn't end up being that but at the beginning it makes it seem as if it was going to be that like if you've seen it you get what I'm talking about yeah, another good example going back is Miss Congeniality because, I mean, they're in a literal competition. And then by the end of it, I mean, they even get Sandra Bullock's character to cry. 
<laughs> from like tears of joy because she's uh, she's learned what she needed to learn, which is how to work with others. Yeah, that Miss Congeniality pageant scene should just take out every Miss USA pageant in history. Like they can't compete with that one in a million scene. I'm sorry. They did that. <laughs> also, their friendship, it was such a quick, it was literally the span of like a week and they all got to know each other so well and they realized a lot of them had a lot in common even though it was trying to win a crown and a title and i liked when Mm -hmm. oh yeah very quickly the scene where she realized when sandra bullock's character towards the end she victor was part of the fbi like they provided them for for her and the minute the case was closed, well, closed, then he left with them and she had to try to get herself ready. She didn't know what she was doing. And normally if someone in a competition is in that situation, they're like, well, New Jersey's out. My crown is coming closer. But they all got together to help her out because they saw she was like on the verge of like breaking down because she couldn't even figure out which one was like the foundation and I like that that they didn't see it as competition. They said, we should need to help you the same way you've tried to help us. And I like that. I like that kind of uh, friendship that gets created between the characters, even if it's for like a moment. Yeah, because sometimes we're so quick to villainize people when really everyone does have their own motivation for something. And it's really nice when at least... Because um, when writing an enemy, make sure that they're compelling. Don't make them just um, one-dimensional because it'll also help your audience connect with both of the characters at the same time, which boosts your drama and boosts the interest. Like, it piques the interest of your viewer because then it complicates the story. Like, who am I supposed to root for in the end? And when you make them out to be petty even though there's nothing wrong with pettiness from time to time. (laughs) Um, It's nice to be able to at least see both sides of the coin. Definitely. Especially when it comes to pettiness. Um, I just thought of an example. It's like that at first I liked the movie, but when I think about it from your lens, your perspective of a rom-com, I I kind of don't agree with it. I don't know if anyone here has seen um, Naomi and Eli's No Kiss List with Victoria Justice that was based on the David Levithan novel. I have not, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so in that movie, they basically fall for the same guy, and their deal is that there's this pact, there's a list of people that they can't kiss or hook up with because or else that, like, violates the rules of their friendship. And when one of them does it, like, kisses, makes out with the guy on the no kiss list it kind of feels like you said like petty that the instead of being happy for your friend who of course is falling in love with the guy she's petty because it's like oh we agreed neither are gonna do this and it's like you're basically saying that because you made a pact for a list you can't let your friend be happy to try to be with that person see if it works out and i kind of feel like that is an example of a friend, quote unquote, who decided to be petty in that moment instead of trying to help them out. And they're like one of the main characters. 
<sighs> so the kissing booth. Anna. First of all, <laughs> I watched it out of pure curiosity. I was like, why are people like talking smack about this film? After I finished watching it, I understand why. <laughs> the main character, I don't sympathize with the main character. Oh, that's the first rule that it fails. Your main character is insufferable. She's horrible. She's she's annoying. Like I, I didn't like her at all. Then comes the trope of the quirky best friend when it's supposed to work, entre comillas. But it just didn't because it made you think, first of all, oh, maybe she's going to fall in love with her best friend. She falls in love with his brother. With, first of all, it doesn't work out either way. Okay, it's bad. I don't, I don't ship them. I, it's I toxic. The relationship is toxic. <sighs> Ma'am, if you think just <laughs> your first kiss out there being... <laughs> In the mountains where the Hollywood sign is, and afterwards, like you know, doing the your business. Their first kiss is at the kissing booth. That's why it's called the kissing booth because they kiss at the kissing booth. I mean, yeah, they kiss. But afterwards, he was like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna take you on a date." <laughs> yeah, afterwards, the Hollywood you. sign. <laughs> so romantic, huh? I think you know. I think that, like the first one is bad. But I can tolerate it. But I cannot stand the second one. The second one, literally, it made. <laughs> it was two fucking hours long. It was too long. It, Listen, wrong. we've talked about this movie in our worst of the worst episode. Yes. Yeah, so, if, so if you want to find out why it's not a good romantic comedy, I think it's because out. all of the characters are so unlikable. Mm-hmm. Again, I know it sounds ridiculous for me to be like, yes, your character has to be likable. But the problem is that, again, we come to these films for comfort. And if you don't like a character, you're just going to be annoyed. Exactly. So I, I think it's a mix of the characters, like none of them being good characters. Like the romance, not having like chemistry and just being purely annoying. I think the... It's just a very annoying movie. It's very immature. I think it's that. Maybe it's just me having outgrown teen movies. No, some are just progressively bad. Look at After. Throughout this episode, I was also thinking, I was like, what other rom-com have I watched? (laughs) And I just, I remember that I watched when it came out. um, Sierra Burgers is a Loser. Oh shit, I forgot about that one. I erased that from my memory and I never saw that. <laughs> so then I remember it is bad because when Josie was talking about um that Rolkas can have like a misogynistic like feel to it, mm-hmm. it does because putting a character, first of all, they made the main character be like oh she's not attractive versus the popular girl that she is attractive so they're putting two girls like to get up each other just because like of their appearance I didn't like that yeah so Sierra Burgess is a loser is um an adaptation of Serrano the Bergerac sorry if I mispronounced that um story and that's also what the half of it is based on and the half of it did it much better it's the yeah, half it, of it. 
is God tier. Yeah, they're both adaptations of the same story, so from the same source material, but uh, half of it definitely did it better. Obviously. Um, Not even a competition. Yeah. I haven't even seen Sierra Burgess, but I don't want to. Yeah, it just just mishandled consent, and we don't like that. Nope. We don't. That also. Josie also mentioned something borrowed. And I hate that movie so much. I literally think about how much I despise that movie. And it also has to do with unlikable characters. Because Kate Hudson in that movie was the worst. She was she the was. most horrible person I have ever seen in a rom-com. I could not stand her. I could not. And then at the end, it's supposed to be a redemption. Because she was being such a hypocrite throughout the entire movie. Like, she, she, she can cheat. But then no, no. But then she gets mad when her friend confessed that she was in love with her with her fiance. Like, girl, you you've been cheating on him the entire movie. Do you even love him? Oh God, I feel like every single character there needed therapy, or they just needed to sit and look at each other and just talk it out. Because oh my God. It was so annoying. So I really hate that movie. And I know Josie and Juan like it. <laughs> I I can't. Yeah I, feel the, yeah, I feel the same way as you. I mean, it goes back to my whole thing that I think that you can like a movie and still criticize it. Yeah. Which is oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, which is something people lose sight of, especially recently. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I love Anne Hathaway and Kate Hudson in Bride Wars. But I knew Kate and Hathaway made the right decision by leaving Chris Pratt at the altar. He pit two women against each other who are besties. Of course, we don't stand. I, I like it, that. but I, my rewatch consisted of me being like, what if they both fighting to ring each other's weddings because they're in love and not because they want to? <laughs> I would love to see that sequel. So then you have a second love interest, which is too good to be true, a backstabber. It's usually, so, okay, this is a person that's not good for your protagonist and is usually a stepping stone in the way to the real happily ever after. Sometimes they can be toxic or, again, a backstabber. Or sometimes they just can be someone that, even though they're a good person, they're just not the right person. And a good example, again, is Princess Iris too. Because we know that she's supposed to be with a, a Chris Pine, but she has to get engaged. So there's this lovely man, but it just doesn't work out. He was lovely, but he was bland. Chris Pine was right there. I'm sorry. I have two examples. One, the first one is after, where Mine? I, let me finish, ma'am. No. Where the guy was toxic. And then hopefully by the end of the franchise, we realize she leaves him. For, you know, therapy and a better man. Wishful thinking. If not, she can end up with Dylan Sprouse. And that's fine. And then my second choice is Miss Congeniality 1 to 2. Where at first she is with the agent towards the end. And then the second one, she realizes that she just had to be best friends with Regina King. And don't we all want that for ourselves? Right, Gabriela? I want to be best friends with Regina. King Regina, if you're listening to this, hi, please be my friend. (laughs) So the love interests get in a fight and quote unquote hurt each other. They can't get together immediately. It has to be in the end. Therefore, you have to add some drama. 
it's that will they or won't they moment. And oftentimes it can be hurtful. So it usually has to be a moment where they genuinely hurt each other. But you have to be careful of not taking it too far. Because the more that they hurt each other, the more that um, them making up has to be this grand thing. Because again, you have to make it believable. Why are these people getting back together if they just hurt each other? So you you have to walk a steady line when writing this important moment. Because this is essentially the climax of your film. This is when like all all is lost that that usual like dark night of the soul. This is the moment. This is the moment when your character is losing everything and potentially the love of their life. I have one moment. Josie and Anne are gonna hate me for this, but the moment that comes to mind is Sweet November, where Keanu's just walking through the San Francisco Bay, and and yes, only yeah. time is playing. <laughs> I'm surprised you made it this far without mentioning Keanu. <laughs> the movie, the movie that comes into my mind, and I don't, I know we like half of us don't stand it, is to all the boys like the part two, because yeah. he, she, she, he broke up with him. I think no, he broke up with her. If I remember, yeah, correctly. he broke up with her after Blackpink played "Let's Kill This Love," and then they did. Yeah, <laughs> they did. <laughs> Yeah, that was a part of the film. We just don't know if they were going to get back together. And there was a third love interest, which, interesting, like, the, th- the tr- this triangle made me, like, like root more for the second character than the main character, like, Nils. Or Jordan Fisher. I was like, why doesn't Laura Jean end up with him, okay? Because Noah was, like, a little bit of an asshole in the second film. See, that's where that film fails because, the, again, that's the second love interest. They're supposed to, they can be a good person, but they can still be wrong. And the problem is that we never see why Ambrose isn't a good choice for Lara Jean. We only essentially see why Kavinsky isn't a good choice for Lara Jean. And yes, she goes back to him. Like, it wasn't, at least, I understand why they should be together. But it wasn't believable the way it was written in that film. Yeah, it wasn't. It made me root more for Ambrose than the actual, like, main guy. Justice for Ambrose. I was very sad for him. (laughs) One, my example is not from after this time. We're good. My example is from Girl Strip, which, yes, it's more comedy than rom-com. But based on one of the subplots that happens during the movie where Ryan Pierce is found, finds out what her husband's been doing on the side and how she's known for a while she's been in a broken marriage. And during Mardi Gras, she runs into basically what is the one that got away. And at one point in the movie, she was ready to just like cave in and be like, screw it, I'm going with him. But he's the one who's like, who's remembered the ring. And he's like, don't you have to be somewhere tomorrow morning? with your husband and she right away falls back into the oh yeah i'm still married with him and when the big like conflict pops out it kind of ruins her chances of at first being with him and you're like no they need to end up together leave the shitty husband and she has that great moment at the end which i'm not spoiling it but it's such a great moment of how she shuts the husband down gets back with her friend and inevitably like ends up gaining the guy back 
or at least spending time with them. We don't know. I'm still waiting for Girls Trip 2. But I like how, even though there are like many plots running around, at the core, it's Ryan trying to gain herself back with this guy. Also, it's very important to note that this moment serves in false security because um, one film that comes to mind that I might be butchering the title, What's Your Number? Oh, with yeah. Anna Ferris and Chris Evans. Oh, yes. When that moment where she decides to break off whatever was going on between them because she thinks that he's no good for her because she has to be this other version that everyone wants her to be. And essentially, she she hurts him. And she kind of hurts herself as well by doing that. So that moment is, again, a false security and false hope because the character thinks they know what they need, but they, they still haven't figured it out. Like, they're still focusing on what they want, not what they need. Also, another moment that comes to mind for me is actually the wedding date the scene where she finds out that he knew all along what had happened with her sister and her ex and she gets mad at him and you know there's also this tension between if if the wedding is going to be canceled you know is she going to talk to him and forgive him and all of that that's kind of like obviously it's it's not as dramatic as some as some other moments might be but it there's still like you know this conflict of emotions involved with the people yeah then obviously like to all the boys i've lived before that very pivotal moment when um everyone's standing at that door and everyone's saying different things and then lara jean just tells peter kavinsky to go home because he's just made things worse but then also like josh made things worse too josh was so annoying (laughs) so there's that moment there. Then there's also the prince in me when, as you mentioned, it's another moment of lying because she finds out that he is a prince and that was something that he was holding back from her. And now we'd like to take a moment to talk to you about our sponsor, Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. Welcome back. Thank you for listening to our sponsor. Now we'd like to talk to you about sex with the romantic comedies sex is taboo if they do have sex the act isn't shown it'll probably skip to the next day with perfect hair and a changed couple to just experience something together when harry met sally is usually described as a sexually charged film that gave rebirth to the genre in the mid-1990s due to its success which leads a lot to how um films have been perceived recently and how they have changed. And a good example, again, is um, What's Your Number? with Again, with Anna Ferris and Chris Evans, because that's one of the few that I can think about that changed that concept, where it actually shows a woman um, dealing with sex. And another one that I can think about is The Backup Plan with Jennifer Lopez, um, because she wants to have a baby, and then she actually, like, you know, she gets pregnant without a man, and then she finds a man. <laughs> And then it's that whole thing of like, um, are you going to stay with me? Because I got artificially inseminated and now you're here. So it's just very interesting. Like The reason I bring it up is because when you're writing your romantic comedy, um, I would definitely look into how the genre has been changing because before it just was considered a very, very taboo subject because 
again, these films were for women and showing sex and films for women. Gasp. Totally. And one of the examples I feel that handles it well in terms of a rom-com, and yes, it has some action, but I like the way they use sex to like make it a point of making a final decision was this means war with Reese Witherspoon, where basically she says the only way to have a tiebreaker between those two is to sleep with both of them, both Tom Hardy and Chris Pine. And I I like that because she's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I love that for her because it's like, yes, take control, test the merchandise before you commit to it. Love that for you. Didn't we watch that together, Gabriela? Yes, we did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a good film and it has all the tropes and it all just works out in the end. Also the quirky best friend. So yeah, perfect rom-com right there. In that topic, I think the romantic comedy that comes to mind for me is Pretty Woman. Mm -hmm. Because it's obviously a movie about a sex worker. And, you know, the that's how they meet. You know, he hires her. And I love how despite that, it's not treated as taboo in the film. And, the, and it, like there are some very like sexual scenes in the film and it's not a taboo. But obviously, you know, there are some moments where she is, you know, talked badly by some of his colleagues because they don't think that she's like good enough for him due to her profession. But overall, like, the sex in the film is not treated in a taboo subject and it's also not very male gazy which it tends to be a problem in most romantic films as well the sex scenes are very gratuitous and intended for male audiences while i find that in pretty woman we don't see that two films i want to give as an example so one film that tries to deconstruct that i think is bridesmaids yeah, she like with the beginning, like it goes like immediately into that. So that plays into flipping that on its like on its head. So when you're writing your rom com, just as long as you're you're keeping true to the story and it contributes to your story, go for it. Now, <sighs> your characters just fought. They had a major fight and a major fallout. What happens next? They make it up in a grand romantic gesture the most important thing how can we believe that they will get back together but don't make it synonymous to it being big it can be something as simple as like for example Lara Jean driving to Peter even though she's terrified of driving it just has to be something that shows that this person really cares which another example again the prince of me she flies all the way to Denmark (laughs) to like reunite with him so there are different levels to it, but as long as it shows how much the character actually does feel for this other character and how much they love them, and you get an awe from the crowd and the audience, you did a good job. I believe that the perfect example for this is from Crazy Rich Asians. Yes. And it's the right. grand gesture of him finding her on the plane telling her he's willing to leave his entire family behind. And the grand gesture was the ring. Real quick, since I forgot to mention it. Paiklin, the definition of a quirky friend. The most likely conflict between lovers tends to be miscommunication. So this is not necessarily a part within your story. Instead, this is most likely what will cause conflicts within your story. So literally, there's probably more out there, but let's admit it. 
This is top tier couples problems and rom-coms. The miscommunication, the Lara Jean ignoring Josh's phone calls and text messages whenever he wants to confront the letters because she's too afraid to like talk about it. Um, and when Harry met Sally, the fact that they just like ships in the night just keep crossing like not meeting and it just again miscommunication the fact that sandra bullock in the proposal just treats ryan reynolds character so disdainfully and like he doesn't matter um and definitely maybe the fact that ryan reynolds character never told um isla fisher's character that he loved her and then they have to play this whole cat and mouse game for years up until the very end like come on Let's admit it. <laughs> Miscommunication is the top tier couple's problem in these films. And yeah, if you're going to write a romantic comedy, this is the best problem you can add in there because it's realistic. A lot of the times relationships tend to fail because of miscommunication and what a romantic comedy tries to do is show you how this is a problem, how you can solve it and how like you can save the love in your life. Yeah. Another example would be Pitch Perfect, where Anna Kendrick's character, Gabriela Substring, I didn't say Ben Platt, I said Anna Kendrick. So back to Anna Kendrick. Um, her character, like Skylar Austin's character, was trying to help her out, and he was just trying to be there for her and care for her, and she kept pushing him away, and they never really talked about why she was that way. And I definitely feel that plays into miscommunication from both parts because he just wanted to be there for her. And maybe he didn't know how to do that for her given her situation, but she also didn't open up as much. For example, when she got arrested and he called her dad to try to like get her out of there because she thought he bailed her out like Skylar Austin. And I was like, no, I called your dad because it was very serious. So I wanted to help you out with that. The next part and how we close off your wonderful romantic comedy script, the ending. You have to convince your audience that the resolution is believable. Your protagonist must stay true to themselves and their ideals while having gone through a journey and having been changed or transformed into a better version of themselves. So you have to find this nice balance between having learned and become a new person due to these lessons, but still having stayed true to the, sorry for the redundancy, but to the true version of themselves that they failed to see at the beginning. A good example for that is actually Leap Year because she thinks she wants one thing and then she's standing in this empty apartment all by herself while everyone's leaving and then she sees her fiance that she finally got which is what she thought she wanted and all he cares about is the electronics which is a question that had been proposed by good at the beginning <laughs> which he is, said if, yeah if your house is burning down what's the first thing that you grab Exactly. And her fiance went for the electronics. And that's when she realized I should have stayed with Matthew Good. Honestly, that if you're writing a rom-com, please watch that scene because I think that's a good scene to learn from. Yes. Because it, it makes it so believable the way that the ending turns out to be. And it's just uh, even though I, I do have my issues with the film, it's a, it's a good rom-com. Matthew Good, Amy Adams. Come on. <laughs> So another example, I'm going to mention this film again because I love it, Crazy Rich Asians. 
the ending where Constance Wu's character grow, grows from that experience in Singapore where she learns she can't or she not to be afraid of people like um, she has to stop being afraid of people like that. That was Henry Golding's ex and confront them when they, you know, do stuff like that and try to be more confiding in people like Astrid who want what's best for her and is willing to help her out. So what I like about that film also in particular is you have the ending where every character grows in a way. Michelle Yao's character grows, Andrew Golding's character grows with the communication skills. And you also have Constance Wu. Everyone somehow grows from that entire weekend. Yeah, so it also has just that iconic moment where she's playing Mahjong and she wins. And oh, yes. It's, and it's the perfect form to show her transformation as a character. Like, I think that is the ideal, the most powerful moment you could ever write in a romantic comedy. Yeah, and especially when he told her, when she told her, like, he was willing to walk away from y- the entire family and turn down everything. Honestly, great, great, great example. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So... That's actually all for today's episode. We'd like to thank you for listening to give a shout out to all the kind people sending love our way. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I had fun making it with you guys and I hope you guys had fun too. And I hope all of you listening had a lot of fun listening to this episode. So if you'd like to keep up with us, make sure to follow us at Film Posters on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Let us know if you want to hear more episodes like this. We might have one about how to write a horror film in the future. Let us know if you're interested and we might give it to you a little bit earlier. Let us know. Just saying, sprinkling that in there. (laughs) Again, thank you for listening. And remember, we're all film posers. Bye. Bye. Bye.